Good afternoon and welcome to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Over the next hour, you'll learn how to live from your true self through all of life's twists and turns. And you'll be challenged to lean into the mysteries of life to find your own deepest wisdom. Now, here's your host, Andrea Matthews. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Authentic Living Show. You know, there are many stories out there from those who've experienced a near-death experience or who tell, who tell us that life goes on after death as peace and joy. There's many mediums also who inform us that life goes on after death as peace and joy. Some who even inform us that we can have in the here and now some of that peace and joy. But is it possible to inhabit heaven even as we live here on planet Earth? If so, what would that look and feel like? We live in a dual mindset, an either-or, good or evil, peace or war mindset. But is that really the truth of our life here on Earth? Be here today. Maybe you can learn to inhabit heaven now. So if you've been following my work for very long, you know that uh, in 2013 I published a book called Inhabiting Heaven Now, The Answer to Every Moral Dilemma Ever Posed. And in that book I talk about what what heaven actually is as opposed to what we think it is what hell is as opposed to what we think it is. And I speak a lot in that book about what duality is as opposed to uh, a a mindset of oneness. And so um, if you want a detailed explanation of that, you can certainly get the book at Amazon.com or uh, BarnesandNoble.com or any of uh, your local outlets. You can order it from there as well. Uh, I think you might find it interesting if you're curious about whether or not you can can inhabit heaven now. The answer to the question is, Uh, Is it possible to inhabit heaven now? Is yes, it is. But we have to understand what heaven actually is. So let's start first with the dual mindset. What does it mean? What does duality mean? Duality means that we are uh, living in a mindset of a belief system that says that there are two opposite things. It's either black or it's white. It's either good or it's evil. It's either wrong or it's right. It's either... Uh, uh, true or it's false, it's either or, uh, peace or war, love or hate, it's, it's not, there's, there's dark or light, there's, no, um, there's not much room in that duality mindset for a gray area. But even in the, in the place where there's a gray area, there are still the extremes in our minds. So we, even if we have room in our minds to allow room for there to be a gray area, we still believe in the extreme opposites as well. So, okay, let's, let's, uh, let's take good and evil, for example. On the continuum of good and evil, we've placed holiness on one end of that con- continuum, and we've placed outright evil on the other end of that continuum. And everything in between is some gradation of good or evil. You can't ever get off that continuum. And that's the problem with the continuum. You can't ever get off it. Because there's no room for something to not be good or not be evil. It has to be one or the other. And so uh, even if it's neutral, if it moves a little bit, it could be good or evil. So there's just no way to get off that continuum. And so we get stuck there. And we think everything in life is either good or evil. And, of course, what that does is keep, keep us in a tunnel vision. There's no room for uh, us to think of, of life outside that square box. There's no room for us to think of life in a way that doesn't 
ring of good or evil. But in truth, life really has nothing to do with good or evil. Now, I know that's going to be hard for some of you to stomach, and that's why I wrote this book, Inhabiting Heaven Now, because its subtitle is The Answer to Every Moral Dilemma Ever Posed. And what it's positing is the idea that um, we have lived out of morality, out of a mindset of morality. Regardless of religion, we live out of a mindset of morality. Everything is on that continuum. It's either good or it's evil. It's either good or it's bad. It's some gradation of good or evil. Uh, along the way and there is nothing that is not on that on that continuum and uh, what that means is that we we categorize everything and uh, put everything in its place so what I do in this book is I go back into the old some of the old stories and one of the ones that I tell that uh, the most about is the story of the tree of knowledge of good and evil because that's the story that a lot of people in the western world in particular go back to when they want to prove that there is such a thing as good and evil, and it started with that bad old Eve who ate that bad old apple from that bad old tree. Um, and the way the, Bi- the text of the Bible has been translated and interpreted, it really does look like she sinned. She did something really bad. She shouldn't have done it. But actually, when you look at the root language, and that's what I talk about in depth in this book, is... What you find is that she was not told not to eat of the tree of knowledge. She was told that if she did, she would bring death into existence. And that that was not a a command not to do it. It was a warning. It was a a way of saying, this is going to happen when you eat of that tree of knowledge. And uh, and then when the the, uh, snake talks to her, the serpent talks to her, he says, well, you know, uh, what... That there is no command that you not eat of this tree. What really is true is that you're going to have supreme knowledge and you're going to know what God knows. And uh, actually, uh, we find the, the root language sa- says that this serpent might be something more like Kundalini energy, where she has to go through this process of awakening in order to, to uh, realize her full potential as a divine being. Uh, so what that essentially means is that uh, when Eve ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, she wasn't bringing evil into the world. What she was doing was bringing duality into the world. So before that, everything was one. She was even spirit. She hadn't even had a body formed yet for her that was formed after she ate of the tree of knowledge when, when she was given a skin to wear. Uh, people think that means she was literally given an animal skin to wear, but actually... That was her skin she was given to wear. So, uh, you know, what, what we're being told here is that at the onset of creation, a question was asked. And the question was, is it true that creation can live separate from its creator? And that question had to be answered. And in order to answer it, we had to live as if we could live separately from our creator. And in order to live separately from our creator, we had to develop a duality. So in duality, there are two, not one, but two. In oneness, there's only one. There's God, and God is everything. God is even us. We are God, and God is us. The tree is God, and God is the tree. Everything is God. Uh, And I use that term God very loosely because it doesn't necessarily mean what it means in Western terms. It's just an all-encompassing term for the divine. Um, So... um, 
so what happened at the Tree of Knowledge of Good and Evil was we incorporated duality into the mind of man. We began to believe that we could live separately from the divine. And because suffering was included in that, the Tree of Knowledge doesn't mean good and evil. It means suffering and gladness or suffering and joy. And so because suffering was uh, actually included in that, we began to think that suffering was caused by something we did, just like a child will do. When something bad happens, a child will tend to think, I, I must have caused that. And uh, that isn't true. And uh, so the child, the child may grow up believing it has responsibility for things that it ha- cannot ever be responsible for. And so that's what we did. We began to associate suffering with evil. We began to say, well, I've done evil, therefore I've suffered. And for many, many centuries, that was our mindset, and that archetype is still in our minds, that when we, I I definitely see clients even today who believe that some of their suffering is caused by some sin that they committed early in life, and that they suffer today because of that. And that belief system is disproven by the root language of of the actual text of the Tanakh, when you look at that. So... Uh, that I discussed that in depth in Inhabiting Heaven Now if you want to know more about that. But basically what happened there is that we incorporated a duality mindset into our existence so that we could ask and finally answer the question, is it true that the creation can live separate from its creator? So we are living as if we are separate from the creator. We are not, but we believe we are. And therefore, we've uh concocted all these other ideas about good and evil in order to prop up that duality mindset that says that we're, we are separate from the divine. And because we're doing that, we don't know that we have the power to live in heaven right now. So now, what do I mean by heaven? Well, there's several places uh, in several different texts that talk about that. Uh, and the major source for our thoughts about heaven is in our sacred texts or at least on our interpretation of them. In Buddhism, there are several temporary heavens, but they are still a part of the illusionary reality called samsara, in which we cycle from one life to another, seeking to move beyond the cycle. So if a man lives a good life, he may reincarnate into a heavenly life in which there is no suffering. But when he finally evolves through the karmic cycle to the point where he no longer needs karma, there's another heaven to which he may go upon attaining enlightenment. In Hinduism, there are six heavenly planes where the gods reside. In the Hindu Vishnava traditions, there is also a highest heaven above the other six where those who have attained what they call moksha, or release from samsara, live eternally. In Islam, the Quran speaks of an afterlife in Eden where those who do good deeds go to live in pleasure and bliss. In Jainism, there are several layers of heaven that offer different rewards to different souls. In rabbinical Judaism, there is a very little said about an afterlife, though they do refer to a new earth on which humankind will reside after the resurrection of the dead. But they do believe that humans are rewarded after death for their deeds. The Kabbalah, or the mystical Judaism, speaks of seven different heavens that correspond with the seven psychic centers of the body, known to many Eastern religions and much of New Age, New Thought, as chakras. And in Christianity... Heaven is a place to which those who have been reborn into a new spiritual relationship with the resurrected Christ or those who have lived good, sincere lives will go after death. So, as we can see, some of these refer to heaven as something that happens after death and others refer to it as something that can occur even as we live this life. In most of them, however, there is a consistent theme of reward that is pleasurable and that ends suffering. 
it's my belief that when we place this end of suffering in the afterlife, it's because of the duality trance state. Because we simply cannot imagine a planet on Earth in which suffering does not occur. And we simply cannot imagine that humankind would be good enough to live life here on this plane without doing something wrong or bad. In Western traditions, and especially since each person is believed to have, have only one shot at life in the Western traditions, the end of all suffering can only occur once we have left this mortal coil. But in all cases, the end of suffering is the ultimate goal of heaven. Unlike some of the more complicated Eastern systems, the Western is quite simple. You do good or you get forgiven and you go to heaven when you die. You do bad or you refuse to get forgiven and you go to hell. Simple, black and white. Very Western. Very dual. The only problem is that I'm hard put to find this anywhere in the Bible. So here's some of the ways that Jesus described heaven. In Luke 17, 20 through 21, he says, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there. For indeed, the kingdom of God is in your midst. And when we look up the word in your midst, what we find is that the word is intos, which means literally within, inside, or in your soul. Now, I don't know why the translator didn't just say in your soul, or inside, or within. They said in your midst, or the people that put it into English said in your midst. And I suspect that's because to say it is within us would be too close to a kind of mysticism that was considered to be heresy at the time that the Bible was translated originally. Um, so uh, they translated the Bible um, based in the politics of the time. And I say that quite literally because there was no distinction between the political and the spiritual at that time. The church ran the politic of the world. And I say the world because it literally ran the politic of the world. And uh, so when changes, when, when uh, decisions were made about what the text of the Bible actually was meant to mean, these were, these were largely political decisions, even up to and, and including the definition of who Jesus was at the uh, uh, Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, uh, Constantine and a cohort of priests decided on the nature of Christ. They, there were two arguments up as to who Christ could actually be. One of them was that he was fully human and fully divine and that we were all also divine, but that we had to go through a process of, of becoming the Christ nature in order to know our divinity. That was one theory. The other theory was that Christ was the only begotten Son of God and that no one else could ever be like him and that he was to be worshipped. Uh, and he was just, uh, he was also God and that, and that humans were not. So we were sinful and he was not and we could never be like him. And that second one is the one that they chose. So they decided on the nature of Christ, and all the translations of the Bible that came after that time, all of the translations of the Bible that came after 325 A.D. had to go along with that idea of who Christ was. And so when you see the other texts that are outside the Bible that were, could have been included in the Bible, should those politics have allowed it, um, those texts were not included in the Bible because they are considered to be heresy. But those texts, um, you know, are, are written in a much more mystical fashion and do clarify Jesus as just one of all of us. And he, because the, difference, the only difference between Jesus and us was that he knew he was divine and we had forgotten that we were divine. 
And uh, that is uh, definitely uh, espoused by many of the texts that you can read that are, that are sacred texts that are outside of, of, of the canonized Bible. But here we see one example of how these translations were made where the actual word entos means within, inside, or in your soul, but instead of saying that, they said in your midst, which makes it sound like Jesus was talking about himself, that he was the kingdom of God, and that we aren't. And so you see how that, that panned out. It matched completely what they decided at the Council of Nicaea. Um, so what he's saying there is the kingdom of heaven is not outside of you. It is not a place you go to after you die. It is inside of you. That's what he was saying. And we need to understand that definition of heaven in order to know whether or not we can experience heaven here on earth. Um, uh, when, when we talk about heaven as being within us, we understand oneness. When we talk about heaven being outside of us, we understand that, um, that there's duality. And duality means that heaven is somewhere else. It's in another place. It's outside of us. It's far away from us. And we cannot experience it in the body. The body has to be shed before we can experience heaven. And that's how dualistic we've become. There's no framework in there for us to understand uh, a oneness with heaven, a oneness with God, a oneness with Christ, a oneness with the Buddha, a oneness with Krishna, Krishna a oneness with all of our great spiritual leaders, uh, a oneness with everyone and everything on the planet. And But the people who have had mystical experiences all across the globe, regardless of religion, the people who've had mystical experiences often declare this profound peace, often a deep joy, a, a powerful love, and a, a, what, what's called a unitive experience, which means an experience of oneness, an experience of oneness with the divine and oneness with all people and places and things. And so all of nature, all animals, etc. So that experience... Uh, you know, it's not on the front page of the news every day, but it's definitely been researched. And the people who've done the research understand that this experience is had by people of all religions, not, not just one religion, all religions. Uh, and, and even people with no religion have had this experience. So, uh, so when they have it, they experience oneness. What we want to do is deny experience and say, that the, sac- the way we've interpreted and translated the sacred text is the only thing we can refer to when it comes to understanding uh, what's true and false about heaven. But our experiences are much more profound than words on a paper. So I, I, would, I would say that these experiences need to be on the front page of the paper. They absolutely should be on the front page of the paper because they are profound examples of what it's really like to be a spiritual being living on planet Earth. So, all right, well, we're going to talk some more about what heaven is and isn't when we get right back from the break. Right In just a few minutes, we'll be right back after this commercial break. Stay tuned. your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Don't you just wish sometimes that life could come with a do-over button? We'd probably use it a lot more than we think. What if there was one do-over button you could use each week? Make that place the Voice America Empowerment Channel for Code to Grace. 
The Empowered Women's Guide to Life with host Marilyn Mosier. Marilyn and her guests will help you find the key to break free from the chains of your life and start anew. Listen live every Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time and 12 noon Pacific Time on Voice America Empowerment. When you learn to see things from a spiritual perspective, it changes the way you see virtually everything in your life. Listen for Dr. Paula Joyce and her program, Uplift Your Life, Nourishment of the Spirit. Our program will help you get rid of the negative aspects of your life and invite love, joy, and prosperity into your life. Turn that negative feeling into a positive one. Tune in to Uplift Your Life, Nourishment of the Spirit, every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We all have unique experiences and outlooks when it comes to leadership and team building. Yet sometimes we clash, even when trying to achieve the exact same goals. Check out Unleash Your Inner Goldilocks, How to Get It Just Right. Your host is Dr. Cass Henry. A shared journey equals success. And every human interaction has the power to achieve this success by working together. Tune in every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Live up to your fullest potential. This is the Voice America Empowerment Channel. You're listening to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. We want to hear from you. If you have a question or comment about today's show, call in now toll-free, 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send your questions or comments by email to Andrea at andreamatthews.com. Now, back to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. And we're back today talking about inhabiting heaven now. And what we've discovered so far is that duality keeps us from understanding that heaven lives within us. And that we can experience that heaven right here on planet Earth. And uh, we can experience it in the body. We don't have to wait till we're out of the body to experience it. And uh, we're going to talk some more about how we come to know that uh, as we go through this, the rest of this show. Uh, we talked about one Bible verse that, uh, G- where Jesus defines heaven for us. And this is where we get sort of a lot of our Western thought about heaven. And even if you're not in the Western religion... Um, there are still a lot of archetypal beliefs that come from that idea of heaven, that heaven is a faraway place where we go after we die, and that it's not something we can experience here on heaven, here on earth. And uh, so I'm going to use some Bible verses, not because I believe they're more powerful than other verses, but because those are the ones that people will use to sort of argue for the fact that there is a heaven that's out there in a place, and it's not something we can experience here. So one of the things that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 13, uh, Matthew chapter 13 says, The kingdom of heaven may com- be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. So he's talking about the kingdom of heaven. He's about to tell us a story about what happens in that kingdom of heaven. But while men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares also among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprang up and bore, bore grain, then the tares became evident also. And the slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. And the slaves said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? 
But he said, no, lest while you're gathering up the tares, you may root up the wheat also. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. So that's a verse that a lot of people will use to say, not only is heaven a place that we go after we die, but the good people will get to go there. And the bad people, which are the the tares, well, they're going to go to hell because they're going to be thrown into the fire. But when we look further into that verse, what we understand is that uh, these parables first are metaphor. And so at one time later, Jesus came back and interpreted this very story. And he said, the enemy who sowed them, the tares, is the devil. And the harvest is is the end of the age. And the reapers are angels. Therefore, just as the tares are gathered up and burned with the fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. Well, taking literally these terms intimate that there might really be such a thing as hellfire. But let's look again. First, traditionalists tell us here that Jesus is prophesying about the so-called end times in which there will be a great divide between the righteous and the unrighteous, with the righteous going to the literal place of heaven and the unrighteous going to the likewise literal place of hell. But the phrase end of the age is much more significant. The root language tells us that end is sontilia, which means consummation. And it is rooted in that word, uh, in a word we see several times in the Bible that is made, it's often used as the word perfect. The word is telio. It means to complete, fulfill, or finish. So it's a finishing fulfillment that is consuming. And the word age is aeon, forever, unbroken age, eternity, universe, age. It's rooted in I, which means perpetually, incessantly, invariably, at any and every time. So Jesus is not talking about end times or about hell that is a place far away where we go when we're bad. But really, he's talking about a consummation that goes on perpetually, even incessantly. So, okay, the first thing we need to understand is that when Jesus first described the kingdom of heaven, he was saying... This whole story is about the kingdom of heaven, and what that means is both the good and the bad are growing, what, the, what is called the good and the bad, are growing in the kingdom of heaven. It's growing in, in between us. It's, as, we, as we go, it is growing uh, all the time. As we go through this life of duality, see, the duality is growing even within the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven has not gone away. It is within us. And yet, in that, within the kingdom of heaven, it is within us, and it also encompasses us. And as it goes, it is, uh, uh, the duality springs up. The good and the bad spring up. And uh, that's a part of the process. And the process is a perpetual, incessant, invariable process that goes on forever. So we're always growing. So we begin to get the hint here that eternity has nothing to do with time, in much the same way that heaven has nothing to do with place. Time and place are dualistic concepts about which eternity and heaven know nothing. Rather, eternity is the energy of ever-evolving consummation. Jesus was one of the great master teachers, did not operate in a world where time rules. He operated on the soul plane where time does not exist. Master teachers operate in the perpetual now. So when Jesus speaks of a perpetual consummation, what he means is that in the perpetual now, whatever acts as a tear inside of us is perpetually being consumed or transformed in the all-consuming divine nature I am. 
So what you could say there, if you want to talk about that being hell, the fire being hell fire, you could say that that a transformation is occurring. But let's look a little further. That fire uh, that they talk about there in that verse, which people translate to mean hell, that there's a hellfire there, uh, is is metaphoric. Because remember that Jesus told us that he spoke in parables because those who heard did not really hear, and those who could not see do not really see. He's speaking here to those who can hear, not to those who hear while not hearing. And the use of that sentence about the fire and the uh, furnace means that he has just spoken again in parable. And yet, if we know the root language, he is actually speaking much plainer than we thought than would be thought by this. The word used for furnace is kaminos, which is a place for smelting, for burning earthenware, for baking bread. That's pretty plain. The word does not indicate eternal punishment, but change, transformation, in that smelting is the process of producing a metal from its core. Burning earthenware finishes the process of creating the plate, the bowl, or the vase. And when we bake the bread, we finish the process started with a recipe. But there's more. Kaminos is rooted in kayo, which means to set on fire, light, burning, to burn, consume with fire. How many fundamentalists refer to themselves as on fire for the Lord? Yet in another compartment of their brains, they use fire as having only to do with eternal punishment. This furnace is a furnace of fire. Pur, the word pur is fire, while the burning up or consuming by the fire is katakayo, to burn up, consume by fire. And it's rooted in kata, which means down from, throughout, according to, or toward, and kayo as above. So what we said is that kayo means set on fire, light, burning, to burn, to consume with fire. Um... Uh, this burning that transforms by consuming is thorough so that when it's done, a total consummation has occurred. And just so, our completion is a consummation, a total consummation, so that we're completely transformed. Okay, so what we're talking about here is that hell is actually in the employ of heaven. If you want to talk about hell, and Jesus did use words that have been translated as hell a few times, he was talking about it's a spiritual evolution that takes place inside our souls as we evolve closer and closer to understanding who we are as divine beings. We have never stopped being divine beings. We just thought we did. And that's what happened at the Garden of Eden when, G- uh, when Eve ate of the f- fruit of uh, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. She ate of knowledge. She ate of something that goes into the mind that tells the mind something that may or may not be true. There's all kinds of knowledge out there that people call true, um, and uh, it's not true. It's fake news. It's not really the truth. It's a lie. And that's what happened uh, in our childhood. Most of us have experienced some of, some of that as our childhood. We uh, were raised in homes with limiting beliefs that told us you can't be an artist. No, artists don't get money for the, what they do. Don't bother with that. Be a doctor, a lawyer, an Indian chief. Don't, don't, uh, pursue your dreams. Don't go after that. Uh, you know, go after the money because you got to have food on the table. You got to have a roof over your head. These are limiting beliefs, and those are just a few of them. There are many more. One of the worst of which is that we deserve punishment, and that and that uh, you know life is filled with if you make a mistake, you're going to get punished for it. And so we're waiting around for that other shoe to fall all the time, waiting, waiting, waiting for it to fall. And so these are limiting beliefs, and we, we grew up in homes that, we, we could say, we came here with a free mindset, 
but we grew up in a home that taught us to believe Allah. And that's exactly what happened at the, at the beginning of creation. We came here free as spirit, but we ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and it taught us a lie. And the lie is that we are separate from the divine. And we have come to believe that so much that we don't believe we can have peace on earth. We don't believe that we can give love to other people in such uh, great ways that, uh, that it changes the whole world. We don't believe that we should provide health care for, for the masses because everybody should earn their own way. And we just, you know, we got to save our money because money is how we live. Um, and so we have a lot of really limiting beliefs that tell us all kinds of things that are false. And that, uh, that means that we think we can't live in heaven on earth. Okay, so what, what, what we've discovered so far is that there is a dualistic mindset that tells us that we're separate from the divine and that we can't live in heaven here on earth. And we also have discovered that the root language of the texts that have been translated to mean that there's a heaven out there somewhere far away that we can't get to until we die, and also that there's a hell that's out there is reserved for the people that are bad or haven't asked for forgiveness, those people are going to hell, and the hell is made up of hellfire, and it's a terrible place of anguish and suffering. Well, there are some places of anguish and suffering within the duality mindset. And that's what hell is. It is that duality mindset that tells us that suffering is a result of our sins or that suffering happens because we're humans. Uh, Suffering happens because we believe in duality. Suffering happens because we don't believe that we're one with the divine. But it also happens as a part of the process that is incessant and perpetual, that is ongoing, that is uh, transforming that dual mindset into a mindset of oneness so that we can understand that we are one with the divine. And so that process is ongoing, and in some, some circles it's called the divinization process. And basically what it means is that we have, we have the capacity to, uh, to become divine beings or become aware of our already divine uh, power. And so when, when we come to see that, we come to understand that uh, life is, goes much deeper much rounder, much fuller, much more alive, much more powerful than what we have believed it is. And the people who have experienced that, uh, um, those unitive experiences we talked about earlier, understand that. There's a book out there that I've read recently that I want to mention uh, by Annie Kagan called uh, The Afterlife of Billy Fingers. And I really would encourage you to read that book. It's an excellent book. And one of the things that I I like about what it does is that it says – that um, uh, not only does Billy Fingers go on to experience an afterlife uh, in, in, in the classic form that he, you know, sees lights and uh, has these uh, expansive feelings that occur to him, but also he goes beyond those first initial experiences that people tell us about when they, when they uh, have a near-death experience. He goes well beyond that to even giving up uh, his soul for spirit, even, uh, you know, launching himself beyond memory, beyond uh, um, the classic understanding of a life experience on earth. He, you know, he now understands the life experience on planet earth from a soulful perspective rather than from the perspective of, of duality. And um, so I really like the book in that it, it, it also does something very unique because what's happening with Billy Fingers is um, that he is uh, talking to his sister, who is still alive, 
Billy Finger was a, Fingers was a drug addict and had experienced the depths of despair of his drug use during the latter years of his life and ultimately died in an automobile accident um, uh, where he was uh, literally hit as a pedestrian and killed instantly. And um, But what happens is first she begins to understand that not only did he go to heaven, but that his life as a drug addict was part of his experience getting him to heaven. And it reminded me of that old Buddhist story that I've told several times on this show about where the two Buddhist monks are, are sitting at the gates of, of heaven and they, they are looking at this drug addict who's coming to heaven and one of them says to the other one, oh, he's going to have to live many more lives on FSM, Sarah. Sarah. He's, you know, he's sure built up some karma in this life. And the other one says, oh, no, this is his last life. He's about to leave the wheel of samsara and go on to heaven. And the other one says, well, how can that be? He's a drug addict. And he said, the other one says, well, he needed humility. And he got that in this life. That was the last thing he needed. And he got that in this life. And now he's ready to go on to heaven. And that's a little bit like what what is taught in with uh, Billy Fingers. He went on to heaven because his last life uh, helped him experience the depths of of despair, of, of, of addiction, while at the same time, uh, giving him a great longing for the divine, and uh, so he, so I like that about it. The other thing I like about it is that his sister, who he's communicating with, has some very rich and deep heavenly-like experiences, ones that we would call heavenly-like experiences, because she experiences deep peace and deep joy for periods of time uh, when Billy talks to her, or shortly after he talks to her, and he gives her proofs or evidences that uh, he, it's actually him and that there really is an afterlife. And so it's a very powerful book. I, I frankly listened to it about three or four times because it has so packed full of interesting information about what it might be like to, ha- to live in heaven. Uh, and so uh, I really would encourage you to read that book. It's a powerful book. Um, so... Um, Having said that, what I began to understand about that was that if he could have these experiences and tell her about what he had, what he experienced, and share that experience with her in such a way that she began to have that experience as well, that's even further evidence that that we can experience heaven here on earth. Now, these were temporary experiences that she had. They didn't last very long, but uh, but it's interesting that she did have those experiences as a result of his encounter with her. Um, so that's a little more evidence that that uh, that there is uh, life after death, not only life after death, but life that is perpetual even in the here and now. Uh, so uh, I would again, I would really encourage you to read that rich and meaningful book, uh, The Afterlife of Billy Figures by Annie Kagan. I tried to get her on the show, but she's not doing interviews right now. But she did give me permission to talk about her book on on the show, so I'm doing that now. Um, So, uh, what we've said thus far is that heaven can be experienced right here on planet Earth. And what we're going to talk about right after the break is what that looks like, what that feels like, what that's like. Is it what we think it's supposed to be or is it something else? We'll be talking about that right after the break. Stay tuned for more. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com 
you're ready for big changes in less than one month's time, you're ready to tune in for Radical Change Now with Dr. Mary Oz. It's where healing meets the law of attraction in an engaging package. You'll hear from guests and callers as they share their stories, offer solutions to life's challenges, and much more. With Dr. Mary's approach, even a child could effectively learn and apply the concepts discussed on each week's show. Listen live every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Empowerment. Are you ready to tackle the rules of business? You may think you're doing everything by the book, following your own best practice beliefs, bringing in endless consultants, only to find that your business is not moving forward. That's where you need to stop and figure out where things are going wrong. Enter Business Rules with host Peter Feinstein. Peter and his guests will break it all down for you to help you and your business succeed. Listen Wednesdays at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Empowerment. It's time to live the life of inner peace that you deserve. Tune in every week for Sacred Exploration with host Lisa Tremont Oda. You can discover the you that has been kept hidden all this time. Show off your personal gifts to the world. Lisa and her guests will combine health and spirituality to bring you the experience that you've been waiting for. You'll enjoy this journey every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Pacific Time and 8 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's sure to be a nourishing experience. Change your world. Change your life. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You're listening to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. We want to hear from you. If you have a question or comment about today's show, call in now toll-free, 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send your questions or comments by email to Andrea at andreamatthews.com. Now, back to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. And we're back talking today again about inhabiting heaven now. Uh, as you know, if you followed me uh, for a while, you know I've written a book called Inhabiting Heaven Now, uh, and it was written in 2013. And the uh, subtitle is The Answer to Every Moral Dilemma Ever Posed. And the reason I subtitled it that way is because it seems to most people that heaven has to do with morality. So that we, th- we equate going to heaven with good people and going to hell with bad people or having more karma to live out is badness that has yet to be resolved. So we, we have this idea that heaven is a certain thing. In heaven, people only experience bliss. People only experience peace um, and uh, empowerment. And, um, and so there's this sense that that's what heaven gives us. But as we just saw... There are wheat and tares growing inside the kingdom of heaven. He said that he was giving us a story about the kingdom of heaven, and he said the tares are growing in that kingdom. So, And there's several other passages that are very much like that, that the kingdom is, is described in this way, but there's things that happen in the kingdom that may not look like they're very heavenly. So that's what we need to understand is that duality exists within heaven. Duality exists within the kingdom of oneness. There is no real duality. We only think there is. So that it isn't heaven or hell, good or evil. It's oneness. There is only oneness. There is only one divine being and we are all part of that. 
everything and everyone are part of that. Now, I'm speaking in very spiritual terms, not clinical terms whatsoever, and I'm speaking only of how I see it. You may see it very differently, and you certainly have the right to have, to see that very differently if you choose to or if you just do. Uh, so I'm not trying to say you're wrong and I'm right. What I am trying to do is put an idea out there of oneness that has been experienced by many, many people across the globe over the centuries, uh, many who were great leaders, many who were not so well-known, but had these unitive experiences that were very powerful. Thomas Merton, uh, Teresa of Avila, uh, you know, uh, those just a few of the couple of the names that I can think of right off the top of my head of people that have had these powerfully unitive experiences that understand um, the divine and humanity from a very unitive or oneness perspective. And, um, and so we can listen to people's interpretations uh, tell tell us what that's like, or we can begin to listen to our own experiences and 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 begin to understand, sort of receive the download that's being given to us when we meditate or when we spend time with the divine. Um, but I said I was going to talk about what what the kingdom of heaven was like. The kingdom of heaven, as we experience it here on earth, does not necessarily mean that we are always going to have bliss. I know you're disappointed to hear that. I was disappointed to hear it too. But here's the thing. What is always happening is that incessant, perpetual, transformative process that never, ever stops. That's bringing us closer and closer and closer to our divine nature. So even when suffering occurs, it's only so that we can put duality aside yet further. So we can put those limiting beliefs aside that we got when we, when we came here. It weren't necessarily what we brought here, but got taught to us after we got here. Those limiting beliefs keep us bound to duality. And what we're trying to do is move out of duality so that ultimately what we can do is put, put form and formlessness together as one. So that form won't exist separate from formlessness anymore. So we think in terms of the body, which is form. We think that, that the body is, is a separate thing from the spirit. That when we go to heaven, we'll be spirit. And when we're on earth, we're body. And that's the way it is. And there's a great divide between those two, and that's just how it is. But actually, the body is spirit. And that's been proven to us now by quantum physics that show, tells us that we're made up of such tiny particles that uh, that at the base, at the tiniest of these particles that seem to have miles and miles of, of territory between them, we are nothingness. We are nothingness that is everything, that is the everything of this body. And that is what quantum physics is beginning to prove to us. And, and so we can see that now through the physician, phys, physics, quantum physics eyes. We can't necessarily see it through our belief size. In the belief, our belief system is we're body, and body is separate from spirit. And frankly, we've had cast such de- devastatingly difficult aspersions onto uh, the body over the centuries. We've called it the sinner. We've called it flesh. It is what makes us sin. It is what makes us sick. It's what makes us die. But actually, it was what was given to us after duality came into being. The body was given to us as a way of coping with duality. It was a way. It was given to us to help us arrive safely on the other side of duality, and it was also given to us because 
we are a part of the creative endeavor, which is that we are supposed to be becoming more and more uh, uh, a union between body and soul, body and spirit, so that we are more and more able to see who we are as divine beings. And that nece- what, what that could look like in the future is a body that knows no bounds, a body that isn't just limited to, to form as we understand form today, a body that really uh, can experience the depths and the heights of existence. And when we do that, when we, uh, when we begin to understand that the body as we understand it today may not be all that there is, then we can see that ultimately the creation was not completed centuries ago. We're still in the process of creating. We are still in that process of creating a union between form and formlessness, of creating a body that is also a spirit, of creating an awareness of a body that is also a spirit. And in that process, what's happening is it's not necessarily all about good and evil, It's all about becoming who we actually are. And one of the things that I see in the world today that's very interesting to me, uh, as we also experience a lot of really oppressive language and oppressive talk and uh, uh, from from the government coming down to us, from our president coming down to us, and all these oppressive messages that tell us that, you know, it doesn't matter if our world is polluted, it doesn't matter if we get sick and die, and it doesn't matter if we you know, are left without insurance. It doesn't matter that animals are being killed uh, unnecessarily. All these things don't matter. What matters is whether or not our president can put money in his pocket, whether or not uh, the uh, the party can put money in its pocket. Uh, It doesn't matter that children are being shot and killed. What matters is that we can collect NRA money, and that's what we want because we we need that money uh, to run our campaigns. So, you know, that's a real dark, oppressive view of the world. But simultaneously, what is happening is that these love messages are being perpetuated in the, ma- in the collective. That, uh, that you know, um, Emma Gonzalez was able to get, and all of her friends were able to get us to understand how deep their love and compassion and, and friendship was with their peers that they lost and get us to grieve with them so that we could see that this is not about money or bullets or guns or second amendments. This is about people's lives. Um, and, uh, and that's a whole different perspective, one that hasn't been talked about as much. And it's becoming more and more well-known. More and more people are objecting to uh, uh, the terrible ways that animals are being treated. More and more people are objecting to ageism and sexism and misogynism and homophobia and all kinds of other biases, racism, all kinds of other biases. And more and more people are speaking up and talking about it from the perspective of love. So there is an evolution taking place even while the darkness is upon us. The evolution is also taking place because while the dark gets darker, the light gets brighter. And it's, it's, it's very interesting for me to watch. Uh, I, I could get very lost in the darkness and get very hopeless and despairing, but I see a powerful transformation taking place that could have some very amazing results in the future. And I, I continue to hope for that to happen um, and, and, and pray for that to happen, literally. So 
uh, I think that, you know, what's happening as we experience a little hell here on earth is that also heaven is evolving out of it. And that's what I mean when I say that not it's not necessarily true that heaven is always bliss as we experience it here on planet earth. Um, it may be after we die, but as we experience it heaven on, on earth, we're still, the collective is still mostly absorbed in the duality mindset. And so we're still experiencing heaven as if it's a dual thing, as if we can have it only temporarily, as if we can uh, experience it only as uh, while we're meditating, or we can experience it only when we are doing yoga, or you know, uh, we experience it only when we're talking to a, a brother who's deceased, or you know, we come at it from a dual perspective, and so we limit ourselves. One of the experiences that Annie Kagan had in Billy Fingers in the afterlife of Billy Fingers was that she was in a meditative state by the beach, and she was transported. Uh, um, mentally, soulfully transported into the heavens where she could see herself being shot beyond the stars. And then she says, my fear took over and I fell back into my body. And I think that's exactly what happens when we imagine heaven from uh, from a dual perspective, that we are looking at uh, our experiences from a dual perspective. I can only have that when. I can only have that when. And so we limit ourselves our anxieties limit us, our fears limit us, and our anxieties and our fears come from the duality mindset. And the duality mindset says, I'm separate from the divine. I can't. I don't have the power. I'm unable to uh, to do these things. I'm unworthy of doing these things. And so we, we stop ourselves right in the middle of an experience. We will say no to that experience because of the duality mindset. And that no comes up and it speaks loudly and we fall back into our bodies and fall back into that experience of duality. And so, yes, it's true that there are tares growing right alongside with the wheat in, in the kingdom of heaven. But what's, what, what is happening alongside of that is this amazing, transformative, perpetual, incessant process. I love the word incessant there because what it says is that there's this pounding, there's this you know, almost like a waterfall pounding down over us, you know, powerfully changing us as we go through life and experiencing life on life's terms, on the way that this dual life is. And uh, so, yes, we, we won't necessarily experience uh, uh, heaven that has full bliss all the time because we still live in a duality mindset, but we certainly can connect to the divine and can have these powerfully unitive experiences and we can begin to get closer and closer and closer to the divine as we go. And as we do that, we become more and more aware of who we are as divine beings. And we become more and more aware of who the divine is. And we become more and more aware of oneness instead of duality. And, and you know, we can deliberately push that experience by working on our stuff. And in the back of the book, In Heaven, Thing, Heaven, Now, I have lots of different uh, stories about people who have uh, experienced, uh, you know, life-changing experiences where they had to look at the darkness within themselves and be able to incorporate that darkness into the light instead of trying to push the darkness away or trying to pretend it away or trying to pretend it's not there. They incorporated it in, they took it in, they loved it, and they began to shift and change and transform as a result. And that's what we can do to get ourselves closer and closer to being able to experience the, the, the bliss and that peace of heaven that is also available to us. 
Okay, well, that's our show for today. Yes, it is possible to inhabit heaven now, and I encourage each of you along that way. If you want to know more about it, you can certainly purchase the book Inhabiting Heaven Now, The Answer to Every Moral Dilemma Ever Posed. Uh, You can get it on Amazon.com or Barnes & Noble or any of your online or brick-and-mortar sites. All right, we'll be back again next week with more. And remember, your job, should you choose to accept it, is to give birth to yourself. Thanks again for listening to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Join us again next Wednesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We'll talk again next week.